You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now you'll find our scripture reading is on page 1135 of the church Bible if you're using one of them. And uh, if you are, and you're one of those people who looks to see what's going to be preached on, uh, this is not that. Um, I was going to preach on Acts chapter 17 to dovetail with the fact that at that point, uh, David would have already expounded Romans 1, 18 through 32, and that we would see in Acts 17 how Paul actually preach the gospel to people without the Bible, as in a sense in Romans 1, 18 to 32, he's speaking about people without the Bible. And those of you who have turned to page 1135 will notice that this is the middle of Paul's letter to the Romans. So, um, am I usurping uh, my master's uh, role here? No, I think this is months, if not years away Uh, in the exposition that David has just started on Romans, and I thought this would be a safe place, therefore, to land without giving him apoplexy. So, Romans chapter 8, I want to read just a few verses, famous verses, for some of you favorite verses, from verse 28 to verse 32, page 1135 on the church Bible. Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? You know what the expression having a go-to means, go-to. You have go-to friends, I hope, Uh, people about whom you think instinctively when you have a need, uh, when something goes wrong in our house, in a past life, when anything went wrong, the children would say, Mr. Brown will fix it because one of our neighbors was our go-to person when anything went wrong. Or you may have a go-to book. Or if you're an employer, you have a go-to employee. Or if you play sports, you have a go-to shot. If you're a, even if you're a great tennis player, your go-to shot is likely either to be backhand or forehand. Uh, if you're trying to win the Masters or the Open Championship, and uh, all you need to do is take six, then you'll go to your go-to shots to make sure that you win. 
So my question is, do you have a go-to Bible verse, uh, something in Scripture that you find yourself going to in all different kinds of situations as a kind of anchor for your soul? Well, if not, here is a go-to verse for you. And if you already have a go-to verse, and it's not this verse, here is an additional go-to verse. Romans chapter 8 and verse 32. In response to Paul's question, what shall we say to these things? God has promised that everything will work together for good for those who love Him, but it is not obvious that they are working together for our good. Where do you go? Well, he says, here is where to go. This is what God is like. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously with him give us all things? And what's important about this verse is that it comes in the context of Paul recognizing that though he is sure God works everything together for the good of his children, he is equally sure it doesn't always look like this. And so he is giving the Roman Christians a kind of go-to theology, a go-to biblical teaching that will help us in times of difficulty and distress. Actually, as I hope we'll see, will even help us when we're when we are fumbling to help somebody who is not a Christian, and we are fumbling to help them understand what it means to be a Christian. And uh, if you just glance at this verse, you'll notice that uh, in a way it's a, it's a bit like a diamond. It has a whole variety of facets, faces, and there are three of them in particular that I think are important for us and interestingly, they involve, as it were, three persons. Paul's teaching involves God the Father. Paul's teaching involves Christ his Son. And Paul's teaching involves those of us who are Christian believers. So, in a sense, he's looking at one and the same gospel truth from three different perspectives. What does the gospel look like from the perspective of the Father? What does the gospel look like from the perspective of Christ His Son? And what does the gospel look like and feel like from my perspective as a Christian believer? So, first of all, he encourages us to look at the gospel from the perspective of a father who was unsparing. That's the striking thing that he says here. God the Father did not spare His own Son. That lies at the very heart of the gospel. Not understand this, and we will never appreciate the wonder of God's love. Not understand this, and we may sing about amazing grace, but it will never be truly amazing. It's amazing enough that grace comes to us who are sinners, but that's not enough to make grace really amazing. What makes grace really amazing 
is the cost, the price that was paid in order that we might sing about amazing grace. And here Paul makes this, it's a unique statement in the New Testament, although the language is not unique in the Bible. He says, at the heart of the Christian gospel lies this, that for our sakes, God the Father did not spare Christ His Son. And that's a a moving statement because, as we all know, He deserved to be spared. Remember how Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2, that for him there, part of the astonishment of what Christ has done is that he deserved to be spared, but he was willing not to be spared. So, Paul is not teaching that kind of nonsense that I saw in the, in the correspondence pages of one of our newspapers recently that speaks about God abusing His Son. That God is nay for me, said the proud correspondent who didn't understand the Christian gospel, but thought he did, thought he did sufficiently to be able to boast to the world in the northeast of Scotland that that God is nay for me. Now, the wonder of this is that from the very beginning, the Son was willing not to be spared. That does not lessen the amazement of the fact that God the Father did not spare him. And that was true throughout the whole course of his life. He was a man of sorrows, familiar with grief. He became like us, says the letter to the Hebrews, in order that he might feel our pain and sympathize with us in our weakness. So, it's an amazing thing that throughout the whole course of his life, he was willing not to be spared but it is something in addition to that, that his father was willing not to spare him. What makes this even more remarkable is that there is a sense in which at the crisis point in his life, Jesus asked if it was possible for him to be spared. It's one of the most moving moments in the gospel story, isn't it? We're in the Garden of Gethsemane, now that the full force of what is about to happen to him, not the crucifixion. Christians have gone to crucifixion praising God, but this crucifixion was different. This was a crucifixion in which, as Isaiah saw, our sins would be made to meet on him, and the wrath of God would fall upon him. And for the only time in his life, in a sense, the only time for the person of the Son from all eternity, he would catch a sense of what it meant for his Father's face to be turned away from him and the judgment of God to fall upon him because he was bearing our sins. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed more than once that if there was some other way, then his father would find some other way. And interestingly, an angel comes to strengthen him, but after the angel comes to strengthen him, the the difficulty becomes simply clearer. You expect an angel comes to strengthen you, and then you're sailing. But no, the Gospels tell us that an angel came to strengthen him, and he went back to the agony sweating, as Luke says, great globules of bloody sweat. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. If it's possible, 
Find another way. If it's possible, may I be spared? That, my dear friends, is the reason for the folly of men and women who say, well, of course, there's another way. Not only the ignorance, but the arrogance of thinking that you can stand before God on the judgment day and have the brass neck to say to Him, you will not be able to say it to Him. I was sure there was another way. Do you think if there was another way, the Father would have not spared His Son? The language here is is a a kind of echo of uh, what happens in the Abraham story, isn't it? When Abraham is willing to sacrifice his son, and God says, because you've been willing not to spare your son, I'm going to spare him. And actually, Abraham had caught a glimpse of how this would take place when he was going up Mount Moriah with uh, his son, Isaac. And Isaac said, we've got everything, but we don't have the lamb for the sacrifice. And Abraham said, God himself will provide a lamb. And so, for the rest of history through the Old Testament, God's people are looking for that lamb. They're glad of the Passover lamb but they know that's not the lamb. They take lambs day and daily to sacrifice for their sins, but they know these lambs can't take away human sin. Until the one would come who would be led like a lamb to the slaughter and would be like a a dumb sheep before its shearers, not opening his mouth because he would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, chastised for our sin beaten in order to bring us peace. Because God was saying to Abraham, you can spare your son only because I will not spare my son. Many of us in the room have sons. This is, this is unthinkable to us that we would do this for sinners. And Paul is saying, grasp this, and you've grasped something that lies at the very heart of the gospel, that the heavenly Father was willing for your sake not to spare His own Son. I have met over the period of life many Christians who, who find Jesus okay, but they find the Father difficult to handle for all kinds of reasons. And you need to get to this if you're a Christian. This is the nature, the character of the Heavenly Father and His love for you. For your sake, He was willing not to spare His own Son, but to give Him up for us all. That's why if we ever sing, how great thou art, we sing about this, when I think of God, His Son not sparing, sent Him to die to take away my sin, that on the cross my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then what happens? Then sings my soul, my Savior, God to thee, how great thou art. Then we need to we need to move round a facet because the same gospel truth is described now, as it were, from the perspective of the Son. The Father, in a love that was unsparing towards the Son, the Son in a devotion 
in which He was delivered up by the Father. You notice that language? He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up, or in some of the older translations, in some ways better, delivered Him up. And I say it's better because it's kind of legal language. It's the language that you would use for somebody being delivered up for judgment and for punishment. And it's the language that's consistently used in the Gospels in Jesus' trial. He was, he was delivered up by Judas to be uh, treated as a criminal. He was delivered up to Herod. He was delivered up to Pontius Pilate. Uh, Pontius Pilate delivered him up in his judgment. It's, it's legal language all the way through. It's language uh, that speaks not simply about the Father uh, being willing to give him to the world, but it's language that describes Jesus being delivered over to judgment and to condemnation. And the gospel writers, especially Luke, but all of the gospel writers do something very interesting in the way in which they retell the passion narrative. The passion narrative from the time Jesus is arrested in Gethsemane until the time He goes on the Via Dolorosa to Calvary is sprinkled with a strange phenomenon that over and over and over and over and, yes, over again, Jesus, who is on trial, who has been accused of two particular charges— the crime of treason and the sin of blasphemy is over and over again declared to be innocent, right even to the point where the representative of Roman authority, the centurion in charge of the crucifixion party, says, this man is innocent, declared by everyone to be innocent and everyone engages in his execution. What's the, what's the message here? Why is it that the one who is declared to be innocent is condemned? You see how the gospel is written into the very narrative the gospel writers tell. They're not just biographies, are they? They're, they're interpretations. They're showing us things that we might not otherwise see. What's happening here? Of course, what's happening here is that Jesus is being charged with your crimes and mine. Blasphemy against God that we have made ourselves the center of the universe, and treason against His majesty that we have gone our way rather than His. And that's what Paul means when he says that our Lord Jesus was willing to be delivered over delivered up for the sake of sinners. That's why we sing, in my place, condemned, he stood and sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. You notice what he says about this? He says, this death of Christ's was substitutionary. He wasn't, notice, he wasn't delivered up merely to show us that God loves us. 
That would be a very strange idea, wouldn't it? You see somebody drowning in the, the River Tay, you don't jump in and drown yourself with them to show how much you love them. But if you were in there and sought to rescue them and in the process lost your life, people would say, that really was love. And that's what Paul is speaking about here. He's speaking about the fact that at the heart of the gospel is this very simple truth that Jesus came to take my place on the cross of Calvary to bear my sin and guilt, to experience God's judgment, to be delivered over to condemnation in order that I in turn might be delivered over to forgiveness and justification, righteousness, eternal life. And you notice too that uh, it was all planned. It was all planned somewhere there in the midst of eternity, the, the agreement of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that, that this would be the way of salvation so that this was, not out of, this was not out of the Father's control. If you read the Gospels carefully, you'll notice that at no point, at no point in the narrative about Jesus' crucifixion is Jesus the poor victim. He's always the master. He's even able to say to Pontius Pilate, the governor, you wouldn't be able to do any of this unless unless from heaven there was a hand on you. You're not in control. My Father is in control. That's why I'm being delivered up for the sins of men and women. You know, you stand back from this, and, and uh, I often think about the words of, of C.H. Spurgeon as he, as he speaks about the cross and says, when I look at what happens there, I find myself asking over and over again, does he love me more than he loves him? Amazing love. How can it be? But then you notice Paul moves into, into speaking about us. And what he wants Christians to do here, and this is, this is really quite important for us, he wants Christians to be logical. He wants Christians to learn to think logically and clearly about the gospel, lest we miss the implications of its wonder. Now, notice his logic. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not? Or if you're from Glasgow, how no will he? How will he not with him graciously give us all things? You know, if you remember first-year logic, if you were a, a student of uh, those abstruse uh, things, um, or even if you just think about it, one of the most common logical arguments people make is what the logicians and the philosophers call the a maiore argument. They put it in Latin because it sounds better in Latin, but what is it? you argue from the bigger thing to the smaller thing. If you're prepared to spend a hundred pounds on something and then the bill comes from a, for a hundred pounds and six P, 
Well, you may get nasty and, and shirty, but you say, look, look, it's here, and if we've paid a hundred pounds for it, we might as well add on the other few pence. And we use that kind of argument all of the time. We use it with our children. They say something goes wrong, say, you don't really love me. And then we say, well, look at all the big ways in which I love you. Trust me that I love you in the small way as well. And that's the kind of argument that, that emerges from the cross. This is God, the saving logician, saying to us, child of mine, if I didn't spare my own son, and if he was delivered up to the cross for you, if I've gone to these lengths, you can be absolutely sure that I will give you everything you need in every single circumstance. You are able, therefore, to trust me for life and for eternity, because this is the kind of God He is. He is a God who uses the a maiori argument. He argues from the greater. Indeed, He argues from the greatest. He has given us everything He has in His Son. Will He now stop short of giving us everything we need to be brought to glory to see His Son when this is the very reason He gave His Son. And so, we can be absolutely sure that He who has given Himself to us in His Son will secure us in whatever difficulties we experience. remember being very moved by a little book entitled Lament for a Son, written by Professor Nicholas Walterstorff, one of the great American philosophers of our time and a Christian man. His son, when he was, I think, 21 or so, died, I think, in the Alps in a climbing accident. And Professor Walterstorff says in his little book, Lament for a Son, now he says, if anyone wants to understand who I am, they need to know I am a man who lost his son. If they want to know who I am, whether I'm a professor at Yale or not is irrelevant, really. If you look at the list of my publications and say he's a man who has written endless, uh, some incomprehensible publications, that's irrelevant. What makes me tick? And if you really want to know me, if you really want to know where my heart is, what has influenced me, what has impacted my character, you need to know I am a man who lost his son. And if you have lost someone close to you, you know how defining that has been for you. And here is the God who made the heavens and the earth, saying, if you want to know the kind of God I am and the kind of God I am for you, I am the kind of God who is willing not to spare my own son for you. And I am the man with a son who is willing to be delivered up to the darkness of Calvary and the sense of God forsakenness for your sin. And if that's who I am in my heart of hearts. Do you not think I will bring you through this? That I will 
provide for you all that you will ever need, that I will lead you home and bring you to glory. You know, the most important question, I believe, in all the world for the Christian is, what is God really like? And I think if Christians were to be honest, you know, if we gave out five by three cards with that question on the top, and, and the answers were always anonymous, I think in any congregation we would we'd get all kinds of answers. That's why this verse is so important, why this truth is such a go-to truth for us, because this is a verse that tells us what our God is like and how much He loves us that he didn't spare his own son. Amazing grace. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me and that his son was willing to be delivered up? Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art. Do you know this God? Um, Do you know God? Remember how Jesus says, this is eternal life. Do you have eternal life? To know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And if you're a Christian believer, do you know him like this? Do you know the love of the Father for you like this? Do you know the love of the Son for you like this? So that you know, oh, whatever. This is a go-to truth in my life. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, with him will graciously give us all things. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your unsparing love for us in Christ. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you were willing to be delivered up to the cross. And Holy Spirit, We thank you for your ministry of opening our eyes as we read the Scriptures, not only to see their true meaning, but to feel their power and grace and to lift us to trust in our Savior Jesus and know that we have a dear Father in heaven to whom we are able to say in all circumstances of life, Abba, our dear Father, Bring us more and more into this, we pray, for Jesus, our Savior's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.